But that's a good segue to the book we'll be beginning this morning. In the time of trouble, trusting that God will guide us. Trusting that there's nothing and no one to fear if the Lord is on our side. We believe that every week, but the book that we'll begin this morning, the book of James, maybe is especially meaning to remind believers of troubles that are real, but of God who is with us in the midst of troubles. This morning we'll begin a sermon series through the, the letter of James. Uh, usually, that is our normal practice here at Temple Hills Baptist Church. We just start a book and we work through it in consecutive weeks, trying to explain what the text says, uh, what it means, and how it applies to us. So if you've been with us the last month or so, we've done something a little different in the life of our church. We've taken uh, some topics regarding the, the church, regarding the, how the church is structured and how the church should sit under the authority of God's word, how the church should fellowship together, how the church should be devoted to praying and the Lord's Supper. We've, we've taken one week and discussed each of those things from one passage. But most usually what we do is just start a book of the Bible and work our way through it. It's what some people call expositional preaching, meaning we, we simply mean to expose what the Bible says. And we think the most faithful way to do that is to go through whole books together. So if you're new to that kind of preaching, then stick around over the next 10 weeks. So this week and nine weeks after, as we'll just work through the book of James. If you've never read through the book of James, right, you get to go through that book together as a church as we work through that together. We think that God's word sits over us, that the word is authoritative. And so we trust that the Lord will do wonderful things as we sit under his word. This book was written 2,000 years ago, probably in the early 40s AD, right? So in the first century and maybe the first letter written, right? So this is very old. And yet these very old truths still hold true today, right? The Bible is an authoritative book and an ancient book, but authority doesn't age out, especially when that authority comes from God. And so we want to be sitting under God's word. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of James? And this morning we'll begin James chapter one, looking at verses one through 12 together. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 10-11-1011. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, then we invite you to take that Bible with you as our gift to you. We want you to, to have your own copy of God's Word and maybe read the book of James this week as we prepare to read through it together and preach through it together as a church. James chapter 1, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12 together. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God 
has promised to those who love him. Here's what I think is the main idea of James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The main idea of this sermon. The Christian life is hard, but not unhappy. Painful, but not pointless. God is using trials to prepare us for heaven. The Christian life is hard, but not unhappy. Painful, but not pointless. God is using trials to prepare us for heaven. And and from this passage, in in this passage, I think James points out four truths that he he wants us to call to mind. Four four truths he wants us to, to, to lock in. Those will be the four points of the sermon. Number one, James wants us to know who you are. Know who you are. We'll see that in verse one. Number two, know what the Christian life will bring. We said that in verses two through four. Number three, know where your help comes from. We said that in verses five through eight. And lastly, know what your true reward is. Verses nine through 12. Four things James wants us to know. Number one, know who you are. Number two, know what the Christian life will bring. Number three, know where your help comes from. And number four, know what your true reward is. First, know who you are. Now, perhaps that sounds like a pretty straightforward thing. I mean, when someone asks, who are you? You give them your name. I'm Omar. I'm Kevin. I'm Colette. And here the author of this book starts off telling us who he is by giving us his name. I'm James. But often that that question of who you are is is deeper than that. It's it's not simply searching for your name, but but asking about your identity. No, who are you really? What defines you? How would you answer that question? How would you identify yourself? Some answer the question of their deepest identity by stating their preferred gender pronouns. I'm a he, or a she, or a they, or a them. Others answer the question based on their sexual orientation. I'm straight. I'm gay. I'm bisexual. I'm transgender. Still others state their marital status as defining them. I'm married. I'm single. I'm separated. I'm a widow. And some state their ethnicity. I'm I'm black. I'm white. I'm Hispanic. I'm Asian. Or some immediately spit out their titles when someone wants to know about them. I'm a pastor. Who are you? James here gives us his identity. What most defines him? What does he most want people to know about him? I'm a slave. That's what that word there that's translated servants in verse one means. It's the Greek word doulos that literally means slave. James says, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts God the Father and Jesus Christ on the same level. Yes, they are distinct persons in the triune Godhead, but on the same level. Equal in in every way, equal in essence, equal in power, equal in every perfection, equal in divinity. And James says, I'm a slave, I'm in bondage to, to both of them. That language is crazy though, isn't it? I mean, a slave of God? A slave of Jesus? No, I'm a child of God. I'm a friend of Jesus. Well, yes, those things are true. The Bible does present our relationship to God as Christians in those terms. 
But the Bible also presents our relationship to God and to Christ in terms of bondage. Being chained to, to God and to Christ. If that strikes us as shocking, as wrong, it might be because we haven't thought hard about the way the Bible presents all people as slaves, as in bondage. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul echoes Jesus in Romans chapter 6, verse 20, saying we are slaves to sin. And he follows up in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, saying we are captive to the law of sin. Everybody's a slave. You're either enslaved to sin or enslaved to God. You're either enslaved to Satan or enslaved to Christ, who broke the bonds of sin and Satan by his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the grave. The reason Jesus came was to break us free from sin, to free us from being captive to sin's reign. But that freedom does not make us free agents to just live however we want to live. No, we have been freed to wholeheartedly follow Jesus with all that we have. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that we are not our own. For we have been bought with a price, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So, Paul says, glorify God then with your bodies with every single part of your being. Now, Satan's slickness, the cunning of his character, and the deceitfulness of sin leads us all to often believe that we're all naturally free. I'm doing what I want, living my way. I'm my own man, my own woman. I'm believing what I want to believe, controlling my own destiny. I'm liberated, free. But the Bible says bondage. Amen. Yeah. We are as free as a fish out of water. As free as, as a man who, who jumps down from a, a high rise building, yelling all the way down, I'm free. <laughs> Until his body smacks the pavement. We are freely falling to our demise. Freely suffocating as we suck up the dry air we find on sin's shores. Freely following the evil desires of our evil hearts. That's a strange way to use the word freedom. It's not that we are free, but that we need to be freed. And praise God that he's acted to grant us and secure us our freedom. God so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to burst our bonds to sin by dying on the cross for our sins and then bursting the bonds of death by rising up from the grave so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will be forever set free, free from the terrible, tyrannical reign of sin that brings death, to freely do what we were created to do. Serve the true and living God, bound to the one who is and who gives everlasting life. We are slaves to God and to Jesus Christ. It's a marker that, that something has happened to us, that we've been converted, that we've been changed, that we've been transformed, that we've been redeemed. That's what James wants folks to know about him. He's a slave to the Lord. And it's especially striking that James would identify himself like this. Because there were other identities that this James here could, could lean into that would impress some folks. For one, James was a leader, one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. You know, the large church of several thousand that we just looked at in Acts chapter 2. The church that swole from 3,000 to 5,000 and on and on and on. By the time you get to Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21, we learn that James was an influential leader in the church, that he was the one who spoke authoritatively for the church. 
I mean, James could have started off in his first verse here, identifying himself by saying, I am the pastor of a mega church. But there was an even more impressive identity that James could claim. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He's the James mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. When the people reject Jesus because they know his family. How could a Messiah come from this group? Is not this the carpenter's son, they ask? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? It's the, the James that the apostle Paul explicitly says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, is the Lord's brother. Initially, this James did not believe in big brother Jesus. But after Jesus died and rose again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says, he appeared to James. And it sparked faith in him. This James, who once denied his brother as Lord and Savior, now believed in him. I mean, how can you not believe someone who's risen from the grave as he predicted he would? Everything he said must be true. Every word he spoke must be followed. Every knee to him must be bowed. I must submit my life to him, not simply as my brother, but as my Lord. James's relation to Jesus has been transformed by faith. So that he leans here not into their physical relationship, a relation by the blood that, that passed down from their shared mother, Mary. No, he leans into his spiritual relationship, a relation born by the blood that poured out of Jesus' body as he suffered and died on the cross for sinners whom God has given him to save, for formal, re, former rebels, for former rejectors like James like you and me, whom God convicted and convinced that this, this Jesus is not some madman, is not some lunatic, is not some babbling, overconfident brother, but this Jesus is the savior of the entire world that had been prophesied about. This is the Jesus who poured out his blood as a propitiation for our sins and rose up from the grave as proof that he has broken us out of the bondage to sin and Satan and death. And we are now bound to a new master, a wonderful master, a perfect and loving master, bound to God the Father and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's true, not just of James. That's true for all of us who's turned from our sins and put our trust in Christ. That can be true of you this morning if you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. We can have the same relationship with Jesus as James has here. A relationship closer and more intimate even than if Jesus was our very own physical brother who grew up in our homes. A spiritual relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior whose reign and presence grows up in our hearts and shows up in our lives. We are his. We belong to him. James wants his readers to know that, even by the way he addresses them. Notice in, in verse 1, he, he writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. This is not literally the, the 12 tribes of Israel that we see in the Old Testament, but it's describing the church. I mean, other places in the New Testament called the church, the, the true Israel of God. The church is the fulfillment of God's plans in the past for people who would wholly trust and wholly live for the Lord. Many of these believers James is writing to were probably Jewish Christians, but not necessarily all of them. They probably had to spread out, be dispersed to live outside of Palestine. That's what that, that term dispersion means there. They probably had to spread to disperse because persecution, you remember, in Acts chapter 8, came to the church in Jerusalem. More broadly here, this this idea of those scattered in the dispersion describes all believers. Dispersed, spread out, exiles, not home with God in heaven yet. But we're reminded of a greater reality in verse 1. Though we're outside the boundaries 
boundaries of our heavenly homeland, we're not outside the bonds of God's care and love. We are all together belonging to him. James wants us to know whose we are, Christ. And as belonging to Christ, James wants us to know what the Christian life will bring. Point number two, know what the Christian life will bring. In a word, trials. Trials. The Christian life will bring trials. James is not like many megachurch pastors who, though they look out at their congregations and see them suffering physically or struggling financially, keep preaching, keep counseling week after week after week that the Christian life only brings triumph, victory, success. I mean, listen to many of the songs and sermons coming from many churches, small and large. Many are selling that the Christian life is simply one big celebration. Thanks, we need to flee that kind of fictional universe and run to the realism of the Bible. The realism that James tells us about here. Yes, there's real joy to be had, but it's not apart from some real trials. James says in verse 3, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not a matter of if you will experience trials, but when. Trials are certain to come to believers. James guards us against having a kind of over-realized eschatology. Thinking that, that what's promised and laid up ahead for us in the future is, is for now. Thinking that today is the day of glorification. Where we'll have glorified bodies and experience no pain, no death, no sickness, no sorrow, only bliss. No, today is not the day for glorification. Today is the day for sanctification. We're having been justified, declared righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ. Every day since then, God is conforming us more and more into the image of his son, making us more righteous. And one of the main tools he uses to shape us is trials. James wants us to think about this reality. I mean, look at the words he uses. Count it all joy when you face trials, he says. That word count there does not mean to number. It means to consider, to contemplate, to, to think about. When trials come, we're called to engage our minds, not simply our emotions. Right. You know, trials have, have a way, troubles have a way of erupting in us a, a sudden burst of feelings. Fear, anger, shock, sadness, frustration, despair, disappointment. But here we see there's a kind of counterintuitive emotion to trials. Not sadness or anger or despair, but joy. But that joy only comes through contemplation, through considering, through thinking about the nature of trials. The scriptures aren't calling us to go through life as emotionless robots, but are rather severing the kind of false dichotomy between the mind and the emotions. Yes, feel deeply, but feel rightly by thinking rightly. Slow down, step back, and think. Think. James further demonstrates his desire to have us engage our minds in the midst of trials by that word we see in, in verse 3. No. Consider it all joy or pure joy when you meet various trials, for you, you know something. There's a knowledge you have. Engage your brain. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials are never pointless. For a Christian, there's no such thing as standalone suffering. All right. Troubles and trials are working to an end. They are producing something. How do we know that? Because the scriptures tell us that. God brings good things through hard trials in the life of his people. 
Now, the, the very existence of trials is a reminder of sin. If sin never entered into the world, there would be no trials, no troubles. Trials are a reminder of sin. But the fact that trials lead to something, produce something, is a reminder of God's grace. I mean, remember at the very beginning when when Adam and Eve sinned and, and sin entered into the world. The Lord, when he came in judgment, promised to Eve that there would be some, some trials in childbirth. That in pain she would bear children. There's a trial that resulted because of sin. But God's grace is that even in that trial, there will be something wonderful produced. A child. Or think of what God said to Adam. That the land that before sin entered into the world, would easily yield crops. Well, well, now that land would be filled with thorns and thistles. He would have to labor in pain and working it. And yet, even through that trying experience, the earth would produce crops, would produce fruit. Friends, the fact that trials are here show that we have rebelled against God. But the fact that God uses trials to produce something is a reminder that God is gracious to us. Yes, trials show that we live in a fallen world, but they do not show that God has forgotten us. God is using trials to bring good things to his people. Think about what he did with, with Joseph. God put Joseph through some incredible trials. He was sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers. And once there in Egypt, he was falsely accused and sent into prison. But God used those trials to not only strengthen Joseph's faith, but to sustain the entire people of Israel. He rose Joseph up to a position of prominence so that he provided for God's people in the midst of a famine. And listen to what Joseph was able to say to his brothers after the whole ordeal played out and he reunited with them. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about or produce that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Now think about the, the trials God sent Job's way. Job lost almost all his family, all his fortune, all his fitness. But it was not futile. God restored Job's fortunes, giving him twice as much as he had before. And he filled Job's family again. But even greater than those things, God gave Job deeper knowledge of him. Job said at the end of the trial, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. In other words, Joseph says, I, I thought I knew you before. I, I heard good things about you. I, I trusted in you. I thought I knew you before. But now by the strengthening of my faith, I see you in greater light, with greater clarity, with greater depth. I see now just how good and how great you really are. I'm thinking about the trials God put Jesus through. The greatest trial of all, all that Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins. And think of what that trial produced, the salvation and eternal life for all who trust in Jesus. So saints, when our trials come, don't think that they're so unique, that they're the single set of circumstances in which God suddenly stops working for the good of his people. Yes, they might be different from other people's, but as James says, we will face various trials different kinds of trials, but he assures us that God is working in and through them all to produce something good. Think about that. Know that from the testimony of scriptures, trust that to be true in your own life. Let that spark and spur on your joy, even in the midst of trials. And namely, one of the things God is producing in us through trials is steadfastness, James says or endurance, perseverance. Now that might sound like, like a letdown. I mean, we'd be willing to go through some problems if the promise was that it produced prosperity. 
But perseverance, it's a more constrained, more chastened product of trials than we'd like. But it's what we need. How does God keep us from having a flash in the pan faith? From having a flimsy faith? From having a false faith? By trying our faith. That we might endure. As we'll see in verse 12, it's those who endure to the end who are the ones who receive the crown of life. God tests our faith. Not to see it destroyed, but to make it tougher, more precious, more stable, more pure. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, just as gold is tested by fire, so is our faith tested by fiery trials so that it will come out on the other side of trials more pure than gold. God intends for our faith to grow, not only in depth, but also in breadth. He wants our faith to be deeper and wider, stretching out over all our days in every area of life until he calls us home. As one commentator notes, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces some resistance, So Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul, only when they face difficulty. God is teaching us, training us, growing us through trials, building endurance for the long haul. So don't despise God's work. And don't short circuit God's work. I mean, look at verse four. James says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect there doesn't mean total perfection or total sinlessness. None of us will ever reach that state in this life. Rather, it means whole or or full. Along with the terms complete and lacking in nothing, it presents the idea of reaching full spiritual maturity. The trials produce endurance that brings spiritual maturity. But you can stunt the growth process if you don't let them have their full effect. If you pull out or or seek to run away from any semblance of trials. James says, don't let up from trials. Let them have their full effect. That's hard for us, isn't it? Our natural reaction is to seek as soon as possible to end some trial. If there's some physical suffering, we immediately want God to take the pain away. If there's some loss of freedom, we immediately want God to grant some release. If there's some relational conflict, we, conflict, we, we immediately cancel each other. I'm out. I'm done with you. We create opportunities to, to dodge one another. We actively seek either to avoid or end all forms of trials as quickly as possible. But in that active pursuit to avoid or end all trials, we could very well be shooting ourselves in the spiritual foot. Friends, oftentimes we need to let trials run their course, reminded of what God is doing in them. The the persistence of that problem in your life that, that strained relationship, that demeaning boss, that disrespectful child, that seemingly dismissive member is meant to produce in you greater compassion, greater grace, greater trust in God. That pain in your body or mental illness you wrestle with is not punishment, but is producing greater reliance upon the Lord. For as long as he allows the deep pain or the dark depression to linger, so he causes you to lean upon him for help and to look back and to see him not only continuing to hold you up, but also using you now to help others. James is meaning to, to reorient our mindset about the Christian life. It's not painless, but it's not pointless either. It's not only triumphs, but trials. Various trials that fill our lives, but he wants us to think rightly about them. Trials are not snipers aimed to take us out. 
Trials are not snipers aimed to take us out. Trials are servants aimed to strengthen our spiritual maturity and joy. Trials are servants meant to strengthen our spiritual maturity and our joy. Do you believe that? You trust that? Is that how you view the various trials right now in your life? As servants to your maturity, to your growth as a Christian, as servants to your deep joy. If you're struggling to view trials that way, well, thank God that there's help. But we need to know where our help comes from. Point number three, know where your help comes from. From God. Your help comes from the Lord. Verses 5 through 8 in, in this passage seem like rather random verses at, at first glance. Like an interruption from the previous section. I mean, James subtly shifts to talking about where to find wisdom. But I think upon closer inspection, you see that the wisdom that James says we need is related to, to what we need in order to think about and live through trials well. And notice the subtle but important link between verses 4 and 5. James ends verse 4 saying that we should let trials have their full effect so that we might be complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, but if any of you does lack, same word, if you are lacking in full maturity, if you haven't reached the stage yet where you see trials as your servants intended by God to mature you, if you're lacking in that kind of wisdom, then ask God for it. I love the kind of matter-of-fact way that James presents things. Like, duh, if you need something, ask God. And God will give it. Now, some of us might view that as a little too simplistic or rather presumptive. But I think it just shows what genuine faith looks like. James isn't presuming upon God. James is doing nothing other than paraphrasing his big brother, his Lord and Master, Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus who said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. And a few verses later, Jesus says in Matthew 7, If your son asked for bread, you wouldn't give him a stone. Or if he asked for a fish, you wouldn't give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Where does James get this crazy idea that if you ask God for something, he'll give it? That God will be generous and not begrudging to give you good things that you need? He gets it from the Lord. And he believes it, not just intellectually, but practically. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Sometimes we complexify the Christian life. Things come our way and we busy ourselves looking for the deeper meaning behind it. We develop all kinds of action plans and rules and successes that we, we think might, might plot our way out of this thing. But James gives us a more basic, a more needed reaction. Have you prayed about it? It's just a common impulse for Christians that James expects. If you need something in the Christian life, Something that God says you need for the Christian life, like wisdom to, to look at all things through God's perspective, then ask God. Ask God. And even when we do pray, James gives us the, the content of our prayers. What's a helpful prayer request? And we need the help, right? Because often when we're in a trial, we might go to God in prayer, but the only request that we ask is, Lord, get me out of this trial. But James says, ask God for wisdom to think rightly about the trial. We pray to the Lord, Heavenly Father, help me to see how suffering, how conflict is part of your purposes. I do not like what I'm going through. It hurts, it sucks, but give me spiritual eyes to see trials as you see them. To trust in your good plans and your good purposes in my life. You want better, Lord, than simply my physical health. You want me to be spiritually strong. You want better than simply surface relationships that never get real and raw, and so no one ever gets hurt. You, Lord, want better than that. You want me to learn how to love people who I disagree with. Yeah. And so, Lord, even in this conflict, I know you are cultivating more of the fruit of the Spirit in me. Lord, you tell us in your word that every trial is used by you for good. Help me to see that. 
to know that and to linger in and learn from this trial. Friends, let's, let's pray those kind of prayers and trials. It's fine to pray, Lord, get me out of this. But friends, couple those prayers or maybe even more, conquer those prayers with, Lord, help me to have your perspective in this. Help me to see that, that this disagreement, that this conflict, that this illness, that this disease, right, that this tragic event is not meant to destroy us. It's not God's punishment of me. This bad marriage, this, this, this bad uh, home situation, this bad job, this bad boss is not God kind of poking his finger into an open wound or pouring salt into it. It's God causing you to be more salty, to be more light, to be more gracious. It's, it's God building up something in you that you need to persevere. It's God doing good to you. Let's pray those kind of prayers. Ask God for something bigger. Something better than release or relief from trials. Ask God for wisdom to reflect well and live well through every kind of trouble. And trust that God will answer us. He is, as James says, a generous God. He loves to give good gifts to his children. But we must ask. And we must ask in faith, not, not doubting. For a doubter, James says in verses 6 and 7, doesn't receive anything. But the person who approaches God with kind of half-hearted devotion, you know, the, the way many of us pray to God sometimes, like, oh, okay, I got to pray, but really I'm cultivating plan B over here, right? Those kind of prayers don't work. But the one who, who lays hold of God and calls out to him desperately as a child, calls out to their father, that one will get what he or she asked for. Friends, old age might give you some wisdom, but only God can give you godly wisdom to live in a godly way through some of the most grueling challenges. Ask for that wisdom and receive it from God's hand. Know where your help comes from, from God. Lastly, in trials, know what your reward is. Number four, know what your reward is. Look at verses 9 through 11. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will fade away or pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Again, these verses seem random. You, you see this kind of over and over, James. It seems like he's sort of, you know, switching the gear shift. It seems like James has moved on to yet another topic concerning poor and, and rich people. But I think what James is presenting is, is how both poverty and riches can both be trials and how we need God-given wisdom to think rightly in both instances to give us the right perspective in both trials. In what sense are poverty and riches trials? Well, they're trials in that they both tend to focus our hopes on the things in this world and not on Jesus and an eternity. They cause you to think that the biggest thing that you need to worry about, all that you need to give your life to, is what's here and now. Poverty focuses us on what we don't have. I ain't got no money. I ain't got no stuff. I ain't got the new iPhone, whatever the number is. My bank account is low. I don't have the stuff that I want. Poverty forces you to, to look at all the things that you are lacking. And it constantly causes a person to, to think on what they need to do to get more. Poverty puts a person in a position of lamenting at their seeming inferior status. It makes being poor the only lens sometimes through which they look at life, the way he or she identifies themselves. But James tells the poor brother, the lowly brother, to boast. Boast? <laughs> For what? James says to boast in your exaltation, in his exalted status. How is he exalted? He is exalted because of his position not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. 
Though having little in this land, the poor brother, brother in Christ, he has everything in the Lord Jesus. Think of all the the promises the Lord gives to, to us as Christians. This poor person who has no material wealth has been made an heir to King Jesus' inheritance. This poor brother who has little, not a a pot to to do anything in, not a a seat to stand on, this poor person has been seated with the Lord Jesus in the heavenly places. Jesus is calling calling these people to to look at your high status in Christ. Y'all laughing, I won't go say that word. (laughs) James tells, that wasn't in the manuscript, you can know that. And James tells the rich brother to boast as well. But for the rich to boast in his humiliation, in his humbled status. Though the rich has everything seemingly in this life, James says it will not last. It fades away. Proverbs says that money grows wings and flies. Have you experienced that? Soon as it hits that, that, that tax return at the beginning of the year is gone, right? That paycheck is soon gone, right? Money does not last. Riches will fade away. And so will we. James says that that even the rich man will die like everyone else. He will one day fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So his boasting then ought not be in his riches, in the status that his riches can bring. His boasting, what he should be really joyful about, what he should really boast about is in his identification with the lowly Jesus. Who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor. Though he owned everything, humbled himself and gave up everything for us. James said, don't get it twisted. The best thing about you is not your bank account. The best thing about you is not the honor people show you as having some wealth and status. The best thing about you is that you belong to the lowly Jesus who was and is despised and rejected, but is exalted in heaven. James is calling both rich and poor to think wisely about the trials of riches and poverty, how they tend to to taint our perspective on our true reward, on what's truly valuable. He calls us all to look beyond the stations in this life to our shared status in Christ. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal. At the foot of the cross, we're all sons and daughters of a king. At the foot of the cross, we all can boast. But none of us in ourselves. The Bible tells us, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. James says, don't boast in the rewards of this life. But boast in the reward that are promised to those who walk steadily with the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at how James closes the section in verse 12 by pointing us to Jesus, to our true reward. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Enduring through every kind of trial has an end game. God is maturing us and preparing us for eternity. One day, the trials will end. Our faith will be matured, and having run the race of faith with patience and perseverance, clinging to Christ, even when everything in us and everyone around us was calling us to quit, it's too hard, it's not worth it. After all of that, we will receive the crown of life. The crown James has in mind here is is not the kind of golden crown you you think about for a king or queen. It's it's the the wreath made of leaves that was given to winners of athletic games in James' day. When all the the training is done, the grueling conditioning, the, the strenuous test is completed, you end up victorious. You cross the finish line. And none other than God himself comes to you and crowns you with eternal life. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joys of your master. What a reward. But since we only receive that reward 
if we keep on running. The one who finishes the race is the one who gets the crown. The one who endures through trials is the one who has eternal life. It's only if we remain steadfast under trials that we will receive the crown. So saints, let's help each other run well. Let's lock arms and run together. Let's be like the folks that you see on the marathons. When somebody trips or they're the last person, the others join in the race and lock arms and help them to cross the finish line. Let's help each other finish this race well that we might all receive the crown of life. Let's all constantly remind each other what James reminds us of here. That the Christian life is hard, but not unhappy. Painful, but not pointless. God is using every kind of trial to prepare us for heaven. And let us respond by saying, have your way, Lord. Have your way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, even for trials, because we know that in trials, in troubles, in suffering, in sorrow, in conflicts, you are doing something. You are building us up to keep on running. And Lord, we thank you that this race is not pointless. Lord, we thank you that at the end of this race, at the end of life, a life full of trials, Lord, that we will be granted eternal life where we will have eternal happiness and the eternal presence of you, your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that whatever might face us when we leave this service, the trials that, that we might find through a text message on our way home, the trials we might find through a phone call wee hours of the morning one night this week, or the trials that might meet us in the office tomorrow, the trials that might meet us in classes this week, Lord, would not tear us away from trusting in you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the proper mindset to think well, to think biblically, to trust that you are using these trials to strengthen your people, that because you love us, you're producing in us what we need to endure, that you might give us the crown of life you promised to those who love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.